Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. Today, we're going to go into a new type of disaster, but also an old type of disaster, but also kind of a new type of disaster. Today, we're going to have blizzards and hurricane force winds and maritime disasters and just really the whole enchilada of things that can go terrible during the winter. Today, we are going to cover the White Hurricane or the Freshwater Fury or the Great Lakes Storm of 1913, whatever you want to call it. So, since this is a new disaster to us, of course, we need to get into some basics as to what snow is, because it is a blizzard, and how snowstorms and blizzards form. And we're also going to briefly discuss the other forms of winter precipitation, because, well, it's interesting and this disaster had it all. To start out with, what exactly is snow? Snow, in the simplest terms, is just a bunch of tiny ice crystals that stick together usually around a dust or smoke particle in the atmosphere because obviously the moisture in the air needs something to condense onto, it doesn't just condense onto itself, and then once they reach a certain weight, they fall from the sky as snow. Now, obviously in order for to form snow, the air temperature has to be below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, 0 degrees Celsius, or they'll melt. It is actually a myth that it can be too cold to snow. Technically, it is easier for snow to form when it is slightly closer to the freezing point of water because, as we've discussed in tornado episodes and hurricane episodes, warmer air holds more moisture, but it can still snow when it's super cold out. But that's beside the point I'm making here. The one major difference between how snow falls at, say, 32 degrees, 0 degrees Celsius, and at, say, negative 5 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 20 degrees Celsius, is the size of the snowflakes. Closer to the freezing point, Snowflakes tend to be bigger because the exterior of the snowflake has the chance to melt slightly and stick together with other snowflakes making even bigger flakes. At colder temperatures, there is no melting and it tends to be a smaller, almost dust-like snow. Anyway, it has to be below freezing in the atmosphere for snow to form, obviously. But it also has to be below or relatively close to the freezing at ground level for the snow to stick to anything. But it's important to note that snowflakes are not just frozen raindrops. Well, okay, they kind of are, but not in the way you are thinking. The water vapor contained in the air is condensing and freezing as ice crystals, not solid ice. It's kind of rain, but not really. It's the same moisture, just not condensed into rain first, then frozen. It's condensing in small amounts and then immediately turning to crystal. Which, fun fact, is often how rain forms in the first place. Rain starts as snow, and then melts on the way down as it passes through the warm air. Not always, though. It depends on the height of the cloud and the temperature of the air and all that. It's much like fire. Weather depends on the answer. It depends, which is infuriating for a lot of people because they want hard and fast rules, and it's annoying. Anyway, that's a basic overview of snow. And then from snow, we're going to move on to sleet. Sleet is basically frozen rain. Not freezing rain, frozen rain. And not snow. Freezing rain we'll talk about in a minute, and snow we just talked about. So what happens with sleet is it forms as snow in the atmosphere, gains enough mass, and starts to fall. 
but on its way down, it hits a thin layer of warmer than freezing air and melts, becoming a rainish type slush kind of thing. It's not completely melted, but also not completely frozen. But then it hits another thick layer of freezing air and refreezes, then hits the ground as frozen raindrop type stuff. This is frozen rain. Again, not freezing rain. We'll talk about that next. It is basically frozen raindrops, and it kind of bounces when it hits. You, you'd recognize sleet when you see it. Next and last, we have freezing rain. Freezing rain starts out as snow in the atmosphere, then as it falls down towards the ground, it passes through a thick layer of warmer than the freezing point air and completely melts. It's not a slush or anything like that. It is completely a raindrop. Then just before it hits the ground, it hits another layer of below the freezing point air. Now this layer of air super cools the rain, but does not give it a chance to freeze before it hits the ground. This is important because then the now super cooled rain hits the ground, and if whatever it is, is it at or below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, 0 degrees Celsius, and 273 degrees Kelvin, because I didn't do that earlier, if whatever hits it is at that point, the rain will instantly freeze, creating a layer of ice on whatever is there. So it's power lines or tree limbs or the ground or whatever it'll create a layer of ice that then causes major problems like power lines dropping and tree branches falling and sometimes trees falling over from the added weight of the ice. So those are our three main instances of winter weather precipitation. But we need to now discuss how they are delivered, because delivery is important. The first type we have is just a regular winter storm. This can be any combination of the above things or just snow for a sustained period of time. Snow and sleet, snow and freezing rain, etc., etc. In the United States, a winter storm is generally 6 inches of snow in 12 hours or less. The next we have is an ice storm. An ice storm is basically an amount of ice greater than a quarter inch or 6 millimeters on anything that is exposed. That much ice can easily buckle tree branches or power lines or whatever and cause major problems. The next type we have is called lake effect snow. This is generally confined to areas around obviously lakes. This occurs when a cold air mass that is dry passes over a large body of water that is warmer than the air. This warmer portion also warms the bottom of the air mass and water vapor is drawn up into it, which then condenses into snow and dumps on the downwind side of the lake. Lake effect snow often occurs in conjunction with thunder snow, which is when there is greater instability in the atmosphere and you get some creation of lightning and thunder which is massively cool and a good band name. And finally, we have blizzards. Now, there are two types of blizzards. There are regular blizzards and what are called ground blizzards. So a regular blizzard is a snowstorm with the snow falling from the sky and sleet and freezing rain and all that, but with winds of at least 35 miles per hour. That part is important. Because of those winds, visibility drops to almost nothing and you end up with whiteout conditions. And that last part is what a ground blizzard is. A ground blizzard is when you don't have any snow falling from the sky, but the extremely strong winds pick the loose snow up off of the ground and create a situation where it becomes a whiteout. So you can't see anything, but there's no snow actually falling from the sky. It's just being picked up and blown around and basically turning into a dust storm of snow. Usually blizzards can be hundreds of miles and tend to last for three or more hours.
that last one is what we're going to deal with today, is a blizzard. This was, without a doubt, a massive, massive blizzard. Now, I told you all that. Now I have to tell you that a lot of these did not exist in 1913. This is the warning system that is in place today because of events like this. I explained all that because I feel like winter storm warnings and things of that nature, warning of winter weather in the United States is confusing at best at times and not very well worded. So being able to explain it and to explain what all of the warnings means can help somebody out there to understand what the hazard is that's coming at them. None of that existed during 1913. That was all recently developed, recently being after 1913. So, with all that out of the way, let's get into this story. So the White Hurricane of 1913, I find the name White Hurricane exceedingly cool, despite the fact that it wasn't actually a hurricane, was a storm system that occurred over the Great Lakes in November of 1913. Yes, there will likely be many Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald references in this episode because that song rocks. And yes, I will cover the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald in a future episode. But anyway, if you don't know, the Great Lakes are large. Like, it's hard to describe how large they are because... They're called a lake, but it doesn't feel like a lake when you're standing on the shore of one. If you've ever flown into O'Hare Airport in Chicago, when you're coming in, planes often tend to bank out over Lake Michigan. And if you're sitting on would be the east side of the plane and you look out over the lake, you cannot see the other side. It is just open water. It almost looks like an ocean. And it's very unsettling when you're turning and it's just water below you. Because you're, you're like, yeah, that's Lake Michigan. But uh, it doesn't look like a lake. It feels more like a sea. Just to give you an idea, if Lake Superior, the biggest of them all, was its own state, it, it wasn't water, it was land, it would be the 39th largest state by land area. The smallest of the Great Lakes, Lake Ontario, is still bigger than Hawaii, Connecticut, Delaware, and Rhode Island. It's almost bigger than Connecticut, Delaware, and Rhode Island combined. These lakes are big, and they are violent and unforgiving. There is a reason that Lake Superior is known for not giving up its dead. They regularly have massive storm systems that have impacts all over the upper Midwest and into New England. These massive storm systems are extremely common in November and have a name. They are called the Witches of November or the Gales of November. Also, an excellent band name. The Witches occur when warm air from the Gulf and cold air from the polar regions meet and create what's called a mid-latitude cyclone. Where the warm air and cold air meet begins to rotate in a counterclockwise manner, just like a hurricane or tropical cyclone. Except, instead of being small and compact like most cyclones on the coast, they are generally two to three times the size of a normal hurricane. So, hurricanes are about 300 or so miles wide on average. Mid-latitude cyclones typically hit about 1,000 miles wide. They're usually less powerful, but, uh, as we are about to see, not always. So what happens with the witches in November is this cyclone tends to form as a low pressure over Colorado 
or Alberta or somewhere like that. And then they'll move northeast or straight east, building strength. The ones in Alberta are called Alberta Clippers. When the storm hits the relatively warm water of the Great Lakes, remember I said relatively, it is November, so it's cold for us, but it's warmer than normal, it gets even stronger. And it's warmer than normal because water loses heat at a slower temperature than land does. And that's where the sheer size of the Great Lakes comes into play. Because these storms often have strong winds. But wind is hampered by obstructions like trees and buildings and hills. But you know what doesn't have it? any of that? The Great Lakes. This means that rather than be dispersed and weakened, it gets wide open spaces to get faster and faster and faster and faster until it is unreasonable. Now I want to take a moment since we're talking about wind, and describe something here that is massively frustrating and confusing for me personally because I always get it wrong, and that is describing wind direction. So in this episode, we're going to talk about a northerly wind pretty often. Now, standard thinking would indicate that a northerly wind means that it would be blowing to the north, but that is not what that means, and I always screw this up, so I want to explain it to anyone else who gets it confused. A northerly wind blows from the north to the south. So a westerly wind would blow from the west to the east. Wind is always described as where it comes from, not where it's going to. It always throws me off, so I wanted to make sure I took a moment and explained it. I absolutely hate it, and I know some of you will too. But that's just how we decided to do it, so that's with what I'm going with. Alright, so now we are brought up to November of 1913. So the first thing is what I called it the White Hurricane earlier. That's not entirely accurate. It's called that, but only the second storm. Yeah, that's right. It's actually two storms all rolled into one. So let me explain this. You remember back in 2012, Hurricane Sandy. It was a tropical cyclone headed towards the New England shore that ended up doing significant damage to a huge portion of New York and New Jersey in October of 2012. Well, one of the things that dragged Hurricane Sandy to shore was an extra tropical cyclone, basically the same thing that's happening here. So when two cyclones get close enough, they start to rotate around each other. They're rotating cyclonically around their own low-pressure centers, and then they're also rotating around each other being drawn closer and closer. Eventually, one will overtake the other and form a sometimes the same size storm, sometimes a bigger storm, sometimes a weaker storm. This is called the Fujiwara effect, and that's what's going to happen here. But we got to get there first. The first storm of the 1913 White Hurricane is generally called the Pre-Storm. The pre-storm formed and hit Lake Superior with gale-force winds on Thursday, November 6th. This is the one that started in Alberta and headed south and east across the Canadian-American border. It came upon western Lake Superior early in the morning on November 6th. One steamer, the Cornell, was traveling on Lake Superior headed west. The Cornell left the Sault Ste. Marie locks empty at about 2.30 p.m. on Friday, November 7, 1913. They're just called the Sioux locks, but I wanted to be descriptive there. The storm warnings given at the time were for winds coming from the southwest. By midnight on the 8th, 
the Cornell was traveling with the wind and was experiencing some rough waters with significantly high waves. So high that the wheel for the ship was frequently out of the water. The wheel is the propeller, if you were confused. Just wanted to let you know. But the wind was still reported at the time by the Cornell as light from the southeast at that point. So why the rough waters? We know that waves on the Great Lakes are caused by wind. If the wind is light, where are the waves coming from? Unfortunately, the men aboard the Cornell were about to find out just why the waves were so large, and it was going to make their lives hell for the next several days. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves yet, because there's another ship that was on Lake Superior at the same time I'd like to tell you the story of, the SSLC Waldo. The Waldo was a 472-foot steamship headed to Cleveland full of ore when she set out on November 7, 1913. There were 22 men on board, two women, and the ship's dog. Not long after they left Two Harbors, Minnesota, they ran into the rough seas the Cornell were experiencing coming the opposite way. They were trying to fight this storm, but are essentially traveling with it, not going into it and out the other side. Quick side note, the name of the dog is not listed in any sources, so I'm very sorry to tell you I don't know what the dog's name was. I do know the dog existed, though. So when the Cornell and the Waldo and other ships on the Great Lakes left wherever they were on those November mornings of the 6th and the 7th, they had left with the warning that there was a storm on the way and it would be accompanied by gale force winds out of the southeast and out of the northwest. Now let's stop for a moment and think about that. You're the captain of a big ship hauling iron ore across these giant cold lakes. You've got to worry about your safety and the safety of your crew as well as the safety of your cargo. You get a warning for gale force winds from the southeast early and the northwest late, and you know that waves on these lakes are caused by wind. So where are you going to take shelter until the winds pass? That's right, along the south and east coastlines. Your goal is to keep that boat in the water. If the wind is blowing from the southeast, even if you break off and are blown out, you're going to be blown out into the water, which is where ships belong. There are stories from as long as seafaring has been a thing, of ships being blown into shore and dashed against the rocks, killing everyone on board. You don't want that to be you. So that's what these ships did. Many of them took shelter on the eastern Michigan shoreline and on the southern part of Lake Huron, as well in the southern part of Lake Superior. This would end up being, well, bad. But we're not there yet. We're still in Lake Superior with the Cornell. So when we left them, it was 12 a.m. on Saturday, November 8, 1913. The waves are rough. The propeller is frequently out of the water, which I don't have to explain why that's a really bad thing. And things are just overall weird because the wind's coming at them from behind them, but the waves are coming at them from the front. Right up until about 2 a.m., which is when the wind shifted around from blowing from the southeast to blowing straight at them from the north. And it wasn't a light wind. It was a gale force wind, which I want to remind you is at least 31 miles per hour. And remember, this is still the pre-storm. Accompanying this newfound gale force wind from the opposite direction of where they had been experiencing it just a little bit before were white-out blinding blizzard conditions. It was heavy, heavy snow. It wasn't dust or anything like that. It was thick, heavy snow. 
At the time, they were sitting about 89 miles north of the shore in Lake Superior. And this is when things went from bad to worse. You see, in a massive storm on a body of water, you want to keep the front of the boat pointed towards the waves. You basically want to plow through them. If you get pushed sideways, the wind and the waves can and often will conspire to flip your boat over, which is obviously never good. The reason for that is because sideways you present a much, much larger surface area for wind and water to hit and a much more narrow body to flip. So I want you to think about this. If you have a stick and you have it in water, if you turn it sideways and you try and spin it, it's going to spin fairly easily. Now if you turn it long ways and you try and flip it long ways, it's going to be much more difficult. It's basically the same thing with the boat. This is what happened to the Cornell. The ship wasn't powerful enough to get them out of the trough between waves. The trough is basically the, the space between a wave. So when you get stuck sideways, you are stuck in the trough and you don't have enough time to get your boat straightened out without being hit by another wave. They didn't have enough engine power to get them straightened back out with how strong the waves, how fast the waves were coming, and how strong the wind was. So they just sat there, being beaten over and over and over again by wave after wave in the constant gale force winds. They had the engine running full speed the entire time, trying desperately to get the ship facing the wind and the waves, but were unsuccessful. And I just want to point out that it is cold. Like, it's teens 20s cold and when the wave hits the ship it's turning into spray and what that spray is doing is not quite immediately but pretty damn close freezing to the ship so now this entire ship is covered in ice not the sides not the deck everything so they are working to keep this ship from rolling over and capsizing and almost the entire ship is coated in ice. The doors, the windows, everything coated in ice. Eventually, they had been beaten so far south that they could literally see the trees on the shoreline by an estimated time of about 3.30 p.m. on Saturday. So, they were 89 miles north of the shore. At about 11 and a half hours later, they estimated they were about a mile and a half from the shoreline. Which is fine, and even pretty, if you're just floating by on a leisurely cruise, but is absolutely terror-inspiring and a death omen if you're in the middle of gale-force winds in a blinding blizzard in a completely frozen, solid steel ship. At this point in time, the Cornell was in a rough, rough spot. They were trying desperately just to live at this point. They weren't even, there was no worry about their cargo. There was no worry about anything. It was try anything and everything to survive and not be smashed against the shore. Back on the Waldo, they were trying to do a different thing. They were searching for land to try and find a place to hang out and wait for the storm to pass. But it was proving a bit difficult for a very specific reason. So I mentioned earlier that the entirety of the Cornell was frozen solid from sea spray. 
Well, so was the Waldo. But the difference was, the Cornell was just trying to stay afloat and away from the shore. They weren't trying to see to go anywhere, just survive. The Waldo was trying to go somewhere, and that's kind of hard when the entire pilot house is frozen completely solid and you can't see through the ice. And obviously you do not want to stand on the deck in the middle of gale force winds and a blizzard. So the captain of the Waldo, John Duddleson, was steering entirely by compass, sheer determination, and hope. He was headed for Manitou Island, just off the coast of Keweenaw Peninsula, on the southern shore of Lake Superior. But Lake Superior wasn't going to give up and let them escape that easily. And neither was the pre-storm slash white hurricane. As they got closer to the peninsula, remember he's steering entirely by compass without being able to see anything, Lake Superior threw down a wild card. There is a phenomenon on Lake Superior known as the Three Sisters. It's said to occur when three huge waves, said to be double the size of normal waves, strike one right after another. So the first one hits, swamps the ship, and before the water can re recede off the deck, the ship is hit by the second wave, the second sister. And then by the term time the third wave hits, the ship is done for and the third sister finishes the job. This is thought to be what happened to the Waldo. They just managed to only get hit by one. That one swept the pilot house right off the boat, along with all the lights and the navigational equipment. Bravely, the captain continued to try to steer the ship completely blind, and with no navigational equipment, and without the protection of the walls of the pilot house, which, you know, seems almost impossible to do. This man is standing outside, trying to steer a giant steel ship towards an island in the middle of a blizzard with winds of at least 31 miles per hour in blinding whiteout conditions with giant waves constantly smacking his ship and likely freezing him because he's standing in the spray and it's almost immediately freezing. So, yeah, he was probably just absolutely one of the most brave people I've ever heard of. I guess it was either that or sink to the bottom of the lake, which, you know, standing in all that sounds much more fun than seeking to the bottom of Lake Superior. And he did technically manage to do it, sort of. He made it to the general vicinity of Manitou Island, but then unfortunately smashed bow first into a small island called Gull Rock which is literally barely more than a rock jutting out of Lake Superior, and it was probably impossible to see in the storm. This was about 4 a.m. on Saturday, November 8th. At some point, the captain had given the order to move everyone on board to the front of the ship, which was a good idea, considering the back half of the ship broke off and started to sink beneath the water. So, everyone was safe, well as safe as can be in half a completely dead ship in the middle of a snow hurricane. In fear that they would freeze to death, the ship's engineers came up with a hell of an idea to keep them warm. They ripped the captain's bathtub out of his quarters, turned it upside down, got some metal buckets, broke the bottom of those buckets out, and made a chimney through one of the portholes on the side of the ship in one of the rooms. They then ripped whatever wood off of whatever they could find and started a fire. They basically created a DIY fireplace in a single room 
to keep themselves warm. Which is a genius idea, but there were other issues, like the fact that they had no food, or, according to some sources, they either had a gallon bucket of peaches or a gallon bucket of tomatoes. Either way, not enough to keep 24 people and a dog from starving to death eventually. And then there was the small matter of the room they were in, now entirely encased in ice, literally trapping them inside. Literally, the only way out would be through their now ingenious chimney that is, you know, pumping all of the smoke out so they don't, you know, suffocate to death inside and die of smoke inhalation. At this point, all they could do was wait and hope they were rescued before they ran out of wood or starved to death, because there was no way to send for help at all, in any way. They also likely had no idea if the storm was going, still going outside. I mean, they probably had some idea. They probably could hear things. But eventually, it's going to be really hard to hear through the uh, tomb of ice they were currently sitting in. So yeah, not a great predicament. All right, now we're going to leave the Cornell and the Waldo there for a bit in their predicaments. Just remember the Cornell is being beaten black and blue by waves and wind, trying desperately to not end up smashed on the shore of Lake Superior, and the Waldo is smashed against the shore of Lake Superior, and the crew is trying not to freeze to death. Because we're going to talk about the big picture for a minute. By 4 p.m. Saturday, the storm system that had started in Alberta was starting to weaken, and then combined with another low storm system that had formed over the Appalachians that second storm would become what we call the White Hurricane. It originally sat over North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia, but when it combined with the free pre-storm, it pulled it up and backwards a bit, so it ended up sitting directly over the Toronto, Canada, and Buffalo, New York area. What this did was push the winds that were blowing from the northwest with the first storm to blowing straight down from the north, straight down Lake Michigan, straight down Lake Huron, straight down Lake Superior. It also set off what is called a meteorological bomb. This is essentially what happens in a rapidly strengthening hurricane. The low pressure of the system dropped 31 millibars in less than 24 hours. This brought a rapid increase of precipitation, and it could produce winds of 74 miles per hour plus, which it did, and is basically a hurricane. This was our white hurricane. Snow combined with hurricane force winds combined with extremely cold temperatures produced massive whiteouts and blizzards across the upper Midwest and Great Lakes region. From 4 p.m. Saturday, November 8th until the storm moved on and weakened on Tuesday, November 11th, various areas of all the Great Lakes received sustained double-digit hours of of hurricane force wind. It is estimated that Lake Superior received 20 straight hours of sustained winds 74 miles per hour plus. 20 straight hours. There were multiple reports of wind gusts up to 85 miles per hour out on the lake. And that's just the wind. We haven't even talked about the effects of the waves yet. So one of the things you have to understand about the Great Lakes is that all of the waves are wind-driven. Now there are three different types of waves. Well, not types of waves. There are three different sizes of waves, basically. There's the average wave, which is 
the baseline wave. Then there is a significant wave, which is basically taking the top one-third of wave heights and averaging them out. And then there are maximum waves, which is taking the top 5% of wave heights and averaging them out. Then taking all that and determining statistically how often they will occur. I, unfortunately, am not good at statistics. So I'm going to give you what the National Weather Service has as their baseline for what the waves are, and then I'm going to give you what their wave model put out and then what my friend Cameron, who is a PhD in mathematics, figured out from what they the information they gave us would be on Lake Huron at the maximum event peak. So this is the National Weather Service. If the average wave over an hour is 5 feet with a period of 8 seconds, so you have a wave that is 5 foot tall every 8 seconds, then a significant wave, which is the top 33%, will be 8 feet and occur every 40 or so seconds. So you have a regular wave, 5 foot tall, every 8 seconds. And then every 40 seconds, you have a significant wave that's 8 feet tall. And then a maximum wave will be 9 feet tall and occur every 2 to 3 minutes. So you have an average wave, 5 foot tall, every 8 seconds. And then at the 40-second mark, you'll have a significant wave that's 8 feet tall. And then, say, 2 minutes and 30 seconds, you'll have a 9-foot wave, which is the maximum wave. So that's like a baseline, here's how it works kind of description from the National Weather Service. Now, at their maximum power in Lake Huron, the maximum waves, like the very top waves, were as high as 36 feet. So assuming that's the highest they got, 36 feet, and they were occurring every 3 minutes and 20 seconds, which is bad, don't get me wrong. But that's just the absolute worst of the worst. That's not, that's every 3 minutes and 20 seconds, which is a long time in a disaster situation. The significant wave height, 32 feet. So based on our math, you're getting hit by a 36-foot wave every 3 minutes and 20 seconds. Then you're getting hit by a 32-foot wave every 30 seconds or so. But, and this is the big one that I think gets ignored, based on this math, you are getting hit by a 20-foot wave every 8 seconds. Now think about that. Which would you rather choose? Would you rather be hit by one 36-foot wave every, let's just say, three and a half minutes? Or would you rather be hit by a 20-foot wave every eight seconds? I think I would choose the one 36-foot wave. And that's one of the things that gets focused on, especially in this disaster, is they're saying, oh, the waves reach 36 feet, which is really tall, but is kind of pales in comparison to being hit by a 20-foot wall of water every 8 seconds. That's not great. Like, you get hit by a 36-foot wall of water, which is basically up to a second-story roof peak. And then, as you are trying to recover from being hit by a second-story house, you are hit by a two-story house that just doesn't have a roof on it eight seconds later and then eight seconds later you're hit by another one 
and then eight seconds later you're hit by another one and then eight seconds later you're hit by another one and then like six or seven seconds later you're hit by a 32 foot wall of water and then eight seconds later you're hit by another 20 foot wall of water like that's going to swamp your ship very 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 quickly especially especially if you cannot get the front of your boat headed towards those waves and you are stuck sideways you are going to be flipped and you're going to be sitting upside down and well everyone on board is going to die it is now the morning of sunday november 9th 1913 the white hurricane has descended upon the great lakes ships all over lake huron lake michigan and lake superior were now fighting a north wind that had the whole length of the lake to pick up speed especially lake huron because remember, many of the ships took cover on the south and west sides of Lake Huron. This meant that they were sitting ducks when the gales of November came early. At 10 a.m. on Sunday, the storm seemed to be lessening over Lake Superior and a small lull in the storm was happening. It might have felt to many their, their nightmare was ending. They were wrong. It's like when you wake up in the middle of the night after a nightmare and you go to the bathroom, you get a drink of water and you lay back down to bed and they're like hey the dream's gone now and then it just comes back in full force that's basically what happened here over the next 12 to 24 hours entire crews would be lost to the waves at about 4 p.m on november 9th the captain of the henry b smith left the marquette port with a load of iron ore that's not an edmund fitzgerald reference that's just what the ship was carrying supposed to be headed for cleveland and he kind of planned it to leave during the lull in the storm. There are stories from crews of the other ships in Marquette that the captain, James Owen, was impatient to get the ship loaded and head out. He even got into a fight with the people working on the docks because they closed the docks because the storm was so bad, and he eventually needled them so much that they finally reopened the docks, and then had trouble getting the ore out of the rail cars because it was frozen. But they did it anyway. This, as we know, was a bad idea. Some witnesses on the shore say as soon as he got out of port, instead of heading east for the Sioux Locks, the Smith headed west on Lake Superior, possibly headed toward Keweenaw Point to try and take shelter because he likely knew as soon as he got out there that this was a terrible idea and there was absolutely no way that he was going to be able to turn around and head back into Port and Marquette. Captain Charles Fox of the steamer Choctaw states he had never seen a ship roll to the side as much as the Smith did once he got out of Marquette Port. He states he doesn't believe the ship made it further than 15 to 20 miles outside of Marquette with how bad the weather and the waves on the lake were. One member of the crew of the Denmark said sh the Smith was rolling so bad on waves that there were occasions he could see the entire deck as the waves tipped the boat back and forth. At some point during the next 12 hours, the Henry B. Smith sank beneath the waves. No one saw what happened to the ship. As soon as she got too far out of port, the snow just faded it away, and no one ever saw it above water again. Likely completely frozen solid, with her crew members trying desperately to keep the ship from going to the waves, but it was no use. The storm was too powerful. 
Only two members of the crew were ever found. The body of second cook H.R. Haskin was found floating in the water near Whitefish Bay, almost 50 miles away. And the skeleton of third engineer John Gallagher was found on Parisian Island in the spring of 1914. The ship was lost to the lake until 2013 when it was discovered again, split in two, some miles away from Marquette. At around the same time frame, the SS Regina was heading north through Lake Huron with a load of mixed goods. Subjected to wind speeds up to 85 miles per hour and waves taller than most houses, it likely never stood a chance. The hatches were caved in and filled with water rapidly. There was no way to survive. At some point, the captain ordered the Regina to be anchored close to shore to ride out the storm. Eventually, it ran aground and suffered a large gash in the hull, causing it to sink beneath the waves. The captain was able to abort order an abandoned ship, but it was no use. Every soul on board the Regina perished, including those who made it to the lifeboats. The Regina was found later sitting upside down and broken in two on the floor of the lake bed. But the Regina had a curious story with another ship. It was actually thought to be a different ship that sank at the same time. You see, there was another ship in Lake Huron that was floating upside down on the surface, sitting a couple miles just north of Port Huron, Michigan. But it was sticking out of the water at a weird angle and caused some confusion as to how long the boat actually was. So for days while this storm raged, there was a mysterious wreckage sitting just north of Port Huron, where a lot of the sailors for these ships were from, but it was completely unknown what ship it was. No wreckage from the mysterious ship ever came up to identify it. So it just sat there, and they had to wait, and wait, and wait, and agonize, torturing the loved ones of the missing sailors, not knowing if that was their loved one's boat, or if they would somehow appear over the horizon still afloat. Literally, I cannot imagine being able to see the boat just offshore sitting upside down and not knowing if your brother or husband or son or best friend or whoever was on that boat or somewhere else. Just not knowing or knowing that, hey, it could be my relative on that boat and they could be alive stuck underneath that upside down ship. That would be awful. Eventually, several days later, a diver was able to get down and read the name of the ship on the side and confirm it was, in fact, the Charles S. Price. All men aboard the ship perished, most likely when the boat flipped over. At least nine more ships would be lost in the storm, and every crew member on board each would perish. The Isaac M. Scott, the John McGain, the Argus the Hydras, the James Carruthers, and the Wexford would all be lost on Lake Huron. The Carruthers still has not been found. The Lee Field was lost on Lake Superior and has not been found. The Plymouth was lost on Lake Michigan and has never been found. And the Buffalo was lost on Lake Erie, but was later refloated and refitted. Every single crew member on each of these ships lost their lives during this storm. But this storm wasn't done yet. 
Late Sunday evening, the low began to shift northwestward and brought hurricane-force winds back to Lake Superior and Lake Michigan. Because of course it did. This was the storm that would never end, after all. By 4 a.m. Monday morning, the low had shifted even further westward, and the hurricane-force winds were now sitting over Central Superior and Lake Michigan. One boat on Lake Superior registered a wind speed of 100 miles per hour in Central Lake Superior. And I guess this is as good a time as any to pick back up our cliffhanger with the SS Cornell fighting desperately not to end up like the Regina, upside down, broken in two on the bottom of the lake bed. Around 3 p.m. on Sunday, the wind lessened enough for the Cornell to get away from certain death that was the shore of Lake Superior after having fought the entire time since about 4 p.m. on Saturday. Oh, and... Another thing I need to mention real quick, the men in the forward portion of the ship couldn't get to the rear portion of the ship where all the food was because it wasn't safe to walk. So they went almost 24 hours with absolutely no food while trying to prevent being smashed to bits and sank in freezing cold waters of Lake Superior. Eventually, they began to travel northward again to get away from certain death until... Yeah, you guessed it. That part where I just said the low shifted westward, they got caught in that. Again. They fought desperately, and successfully I might add, to keep the head in the waves before being hit by a massive wave and destroying a huge portion of everything on the deck. Which then sent them back into the trough of the waves and getting beaten back several miles. But they were eventually able to drop an anchor and get it back around before the anchor broke off into the water. Literally broke the anchor off the ship, sent it all into the bottom of the lake. They then spent the time from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. fighting to stay away from the shore again. Basically, this ship spent almost three days running full speed ahead in one direction, the full power of their steam engine to prevent going backwards. That's insanely difficult to comprehend. You know when the wind is blowing really hard and it looks like the birds are going nowhere? Like if you, like you're in a storm and you're looking at the birds flying and they appear to be going nowhere. Now, I want to imagine that bird is a several hundred ton steel boat that is about 500 feet long. That is a ridiculous image to put in your head. That it is spending all of its power to prevent itself from going backwards while it's trying to go forwards. Eventually, at 10.30 p.m. on Monday evening, after first being hit by the winds at 2 a.m. on Friday morning, the Cornell was able to head back to safety. She made it out of the storm, survived the great white hurricane without losing a single soul on board the ship. That is some seriously impressive sailing, because by all accounts, it probably should have sank. But they didn't. They made it. Now let's pick up our other ship, the LC Waldo. The Waldo was in a bad predicament that was rapidly getting worse. Encased in a tomb of ice... They had whatever wood they could tear off of the walls of the ship and tomatoes or peaches or nothing to eat. Depends on the source. It was early Saturday morning. So basically like 10 a.m. Late in the afternoon, a boat 
no one is sure what boat, spotted the wreckage of the Waldo and notified both the Eagle Harbor Life-Saving Station and the Portage Life-Saving Station. The U.S. Life-Saving Service, just so that you're aware, was one of the precursors to the U.S. Coast Guard. Basically, they set up stations all along the coast, in the Great Lakes, the west coast of Florida, and all along the west coast, uh, these life-saving stations where they would send out rescue teams to save ships and cargo and that kind of stuff that were foundering along the coast. I'm not kidding. Their unofficial motto is, and this is a direct quote, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Which is just an absolutely awesome motto. Not gonna lie. And that's what they did. The Eagle Harbor Station was closest, so they immediately geared up to head out. One minor problem, though. The Eagle Harbor Station had two boats. A big 34-foot boat and a smaller 26-ish foot, barely bigger than a dinghy boat. Logic would say they should take the big boat, right? With all this wind and waves and all that, bigger the boat, less chance you're going to capsize. Yeah, that's the problem. The 34-foot boat was broken and out of commission. Obviously, they weren't going to let the Waldo just sit there and the crew freeze to death because their motto is literally, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. So they were going to save them or they were going to die trying. So they took out the small boat. Captain Charles Tuckler and some of the other members climbed into the boat and headed out, knowing full well they were very likely were not coming back and were about to be the next victims of the storm. And remember that this is during the worst part of the storm. This is when those 100 mile per hour wind gusts were recorded in the center of Lake Superior. And Keweenaw Point is in the center of Lake Superior. So they are going out in the worst of the worst this storm has to offer. They did not make it far before the boat became essentially a block of ice. They made it 8 miles. They needed to go 32 miles. When they got back to the station, they had to be literally cut out of their seats because they were frozen to them. Like, literally, all of the crew had to, they had to get little axes from inside from the people that were still in the station and hack them out of their seats because they were frozen to them. But that did not deter the Eagle Station life-saving crew. The mechanics worked round the clock to get the big boat working again and managed to get it out at 3 a.m. on Sunday morning. The Portage crew, meanwhile, realized they could got, not get to the Waldo going around the point, so they decided to take the inland route instead. Both crews arrived within hours of each other, covered in ice and trying desperately to get close to the Waldo to allow for rescue, which, again, is going to be ridiculously difficult because... 20-foot average waves and, you know, 85 to 100 mile per hour winds and completely covered in ice, so really hard to steer or see, and also the middle of a blizzard, so again, still really hard to see, and this boat has already smashed itself against rocks, so you also have to worry about smashing yourself against rocks and sinking and everyone on board your rescue ship dying, and then that rescue ship having to be rescued by another rescue ship, which could also become damaged. And it's a whole 
struggle. But thankfully, none of that happened because they were able to get tied off and onto the deck of the Waldo. And this presents our next predicament. They're on the deck of the Waldo, which is frozen solid. What is ice when it's frozen solid? Slippery. So, there are reports that several of the life-saving crew members took their shoes off and walked across the deck of the Waldo on the ice in just their socks because it gave them better traction. And then we have our next issue. The area that the crew of the Waldo were in was frozen solid. So, they had to sit there while the crew inside the Waldo hacked at the ice on the door and the life-saving crews hacked on the ice on the outside. After several hours, standing in a literal snow hurricane, freezing sea spray, and 70 to 80 mile per hour winds with temperatures in the teens and 20s with white-out blizzard conditions and snow, they rescued all 22 men, both women, and the ship dog. Yes, that's right, the puppy made it through alive. I know that's the part you all were hanging on. I can confirm that the ship dog made it through the storm alive and safe. For their extraordinary efforts in trying to save the crew of the LC Waldo, the Eagle Harbor crew and the Portage crew both earned the gold medal, which is the highest medal you can re could receive with the U.S. Life Saving Service. On Monday and Tuesday, the low finally started to weaken and move off to the east, leaving in its wake 12 ships who lost their entire crew and nearly 250 dead sailors, many of whom were never found. Now it's true that a majority of the damage of the storm occurred out on the lakes. That's where it was strongest, that's where the winds were worst, that is where most of the disaster took place. But not all. There was also significant damage on land. Cleveland received 22 inches of snow in 24 hours, as well as hurricane-force winds coming off of Lake Erie. Power was lost for days up and down the shores of Lake Superior, Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, and Lake Erie. There were many deaths on land that were likely not recorded, so the 250 death toll that is often given is generally usually just reserved for those deaths that occurred out on the Great Lakes. There were likely many more deaths on land that just weren't recorded with the storm. The blame for the loss of life and the loss of that many ships was placed in many different locations. One of the main ones, in my opinion, was the fact that such large ships with large cargoes often only had one engine, which was not even remotely close to strong enough to be able to fight against the strength of the storm. A ship the size of the Cornell, 474 feet long, should not have been being pushed backwards by wind and wave. Blame was also laid at the feet of the U.S. Weather Bureau for what was confusing and sometimes contradictory storm warnings. The truth is, though, they didn't really have the ability or technology to adequately predict the storm that was coming. Now, they absolutely could have put out better you know, storm warnings or more forceful storm warnings 
so that that many ships weren't caught out on the lakes, but they didn't, and it probably led to some of the issues that occurred and the loss of some of the ships. Now, I've spent a lot of time calling this the White Hurricane, and technically that is not accurate. It was not a hurricane. It was a mid-latitude cyclone. However, the lowest the storm pressure dropped to during the entire event was 968 millibars, which is equal to about a Category 2 hurricane. So basically, if we want to compare it, which seems relatively fair considering what happened and how strong the winds were, this is basically a 1,000-mile-wide Category 2 hurricane that, instead of putting down rain and lightning and thunder, was putting down white-out snow blizzard conditions with 75 to 100 mile per hour wind gusts and winds sustained at about 74 to 80 miles per hour. It was basically a hurricane on the Great Lakes, and that's amazing. It stands to this day as one of the deadliest and most costly disasters in the history of the Great Lakes. And with that, we've reached the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, Disastrous H-S-T-R-Y. Um, I also have a Patreon where I have a couple uh, Patreon episodes, and we'll have more Patreon episodes in the future. It's patreon.com slash history spelled correctly. also have an Instagram and a TikTok and all that kind of fun stuff. And if you want to let me know how I'm doing, uh, it's disastroushistory at gmail.com. Also, uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, since Spotify now has ratings. So that'll help me grow the podcast and be able to do more episodes and all that kind of fun stuff. I appreciate you guys. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. And always remember to stay safe and always check your smoke detector batteries.